Go ahead and take your Bibles and your journals. Locate 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at Christ's suffering and our salvation, so locate that chapter in your journal as well. As you do both of those, let me help prepare you for these five verses. Our minds work this way often, and I think they're trained to work this way. But often our minds, when we hear a word or a phrase or a truth, it will turn into a cascade of other phrases or truths or words. We may call the first word or phrase or truth a trigger word, perhaps, uh, a trigger truth. It could be the first thing said, but it unleashes a, a lot of other thoughts and words and phrases. Let me give you an example. When our kids were all at home, and we still do this between me and Julie, but especially at home when our kids were there, we'd make a plan for, let's say, several months out. And then one of us would say, hey, kids, we're going on vacation. That's a trigger phrase because you know what happens? All of our kids were now thinking about a thousand things that perhaps we would do, where we'd go, what we would eat. It's a trigger phrase. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase or a, a sentence or a truth that unleashes all kinds of other thoughts in your head, they begin to cascade down. Here's another one. You'll say this tomorrow probably, or maybe you'll say it today. You'll say, hey, we're cooking out. And that just simple phrase will trigger, will cascade other thoughts and words like, okay, what are we having to eat? Some of you have traditions and rituals. It may mean corn on the cob. It may mean hamburgers, hot dogs, brats. It may mean you're smoking some meat. You're going somewhere for a picnic. You're staying home. Maybe you're going to the ball game for fireworks. It, it has all kinds of thoughts. That's just the way our minds work. We're kind of trained that when we hear certain things, it cascades into a lot of other things. That idea is what's happening in the last five verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to see verse 18 be for us this trigger verse, this initial thought that cascades into a lot of other thoughts. So I want you to keep that in mind as we kind of work through this text. If you're kind of tracking with me, just nod, would you? Kind of understand the flow of the text now? And here's really the main, we'll call it trigger truth, the take-home truth. I'm going to give it to you up front. You'll see this surface. You'll see it emerge. Here's really what we're going to see is what will kind of initiate the waterfall, the cascading of so many other thoughts. It's this right here that Christ's death and resurrection stand as the solely sufficient victory and vehicle of our salvation. And if I were to take away the last half of that, we'd really have the, the core of what I call the trigger truth. It's this right here. Christ's death and resurrection are solely sufficient. Like that right there should trigger in you a lot of other thoughts and truths and phrases. And Peter's going to show us what those are. So with that in mind, with this take-home trigger truth before us, Let's jump into these five verses, knowing what we're now going to see, and we kind of expect this text to flow in that fashion. I'll read. You follow along with me. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Let me stop there. We've got four words in. i got to say one thing. Notice the word for. He's now explaining something he's previously mentioned. For is an explanatory word. It's a transition word. He's giving an example now. Now watch this, church. This will be right off the bat stinging and helpful. Right off the bat, he's given an example of how God's will is better than your way. Remember the previous verse? He said it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He, he's saying this. God's will, even when it's, 
includes suffering is better than your way. Here's an example of that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's way better, isn't it, church? Hallelujah. I mean, that verse is the trigger truth. It's the, it's the, it's the, uh, the phraseology, the sentence that really now begins to cascade Peter's mind to many other thoughts. Notice how he proceeds. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Truly, he is worthy to wear that, bear that name. Amen? And this text shows that. So do you see how 19 through about 22 really is a cascading of all kinds of thoughts, all stemming from this incredible trigger truth that in Christ we have everything we need for all of our redemption. So let's walk through this, and I want to use three categories to do that. I want to talk to you first about the theology, which is mainly verse 18. And then I want to show you some typology where we'll get into some of the phrases that are hard to understand whether you think, well, how's he going to explain that one? How are we going to disagree and agree on this? What's going on with these verses? We'll talk about the typology, and then we'll end with some praxeology. That's actually a word. I didn't make that up. It's actually the study of intentional behaviors. And I'm praying that as we understand the theology and typology of this text, you will leave with intentional behaviors. The uh, simple word for that is application. I'm going to bring some to you as we close out the text. My prayer is that we will intentionally act in certain ways because of this trigger truth in 18 and the cascading thoughts that flow from it. So like we said at the beginning, let's dive in to, first of all, some theology. Verse 18 really is perhaps one of the richest portions of Scripture dealing with the atonement, our redemption. I want you to notice from this verse, six theological nuggets, and I'll just mention them briefly, about Christ's atonement. Now, what I did is I went ahead and kind of um, finished the lab. So we, we call the lab, you know, we work in that a lot of times uh, live on site, but this would have taken a lot longer than I have time for today. So here's the finished product of the lab. You should make your journal look like this or maybe write in your Bible because this is a, a crash course in an aspect of soteriology, okay? Uh, but it's very healthy for our church, very helpful for you. We don't want to avoid learning. It's really the, the foundation. Doctrine forms the foundation for how we act and what we think and how we feel. So here's six things about the atonement that you need to know and believe. First of all, look at atonement's provider. It's Christ. This is where Peter identifies the who of atonement. It's Jesus Christ. Notice he uses the Old Testament title for Jesus, which means Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promised. So atonement is in a person, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ, God's Son. And the church says, amen. Atonement's provider is Christ. Notice 
atonement's duration. It says that Christ suffered once for sins. He was the culminating Lamb of God. And when Jesus Christ died as the perfect, holy Lamb of God, there was no need any longer for more physical lambs. Jesus was the fulfillment, the final one. That's why Peter says here he suffered once for sins. Our atonement is eternal. This speaks to its completion uh, and, and its duration. It's forever. Amen. These nuggets, by the way, will kind of lodge in your heart. They'll hopefully begin to wet your mouth, and you'll just all day long just rejoice in these delicious morsels about what God has done on our behalf through Christ. Notice atonement's essence. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. This speaks to substitution. And of course, now if you take this phrase and combine it with the previous one, that he suffered once for sins, that's a hearken back to the sin offering of the Old Testament. Christ was the final once and for all sin offering. He took our place. He was our substitute. You begin to realize that the atonement is a penal substitution. Christ took your place. He took your penalty. You were the unrighteous who should have paid for your sins, but Jesus took your place once and for all. Could the church say, hallelujah, amen. These are nuggets about the atonement that are true and that are right, and they trigger so many more thoughts. So we see the atonement's provider, the atonement's duration, the atonement's essence. It's about substitution. And then we see the atonement's result. It's reconciliation. Christ did this the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so the result of Christ's atonement is reconciliation. Peter said earlier, we have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. A better word would be we've been turned around. You know, we've been brought to God. How? Not by our own works or merit, but by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He is the bridge that crosses this eternal predicament we're in, this cavern. How do I get to God? He's holy. I'm unholy. Jesus Christ brings us to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so again, just this is really six messages. I just want you to know that, okay? It's impossible to quickly go through these, but this crash course is best to keep the text kind of all in a tight unit. Notice next the atonement's method, which is the crucifixion. Peter here makes a point to say it was physical, literal, bodily in the flesh. So Jesus Christ lived in historical time and space and could be seen to be crucified. He was sacrificed on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the final, ultimate, forever Lamb of God. This happened on a, in a place, in time and space, and then it says he was made alive in the spirit. Here's atonement's vindication. It's the resurrection. And when God raised Jesus from the, death, from the dead, it was God saying, I'm satisfied with the sacrifice forever. And so now all who believe and repent receive the gift of eternal life. They receive atonement. They receive a covering for their sins. They receive redemption. Now, church, watch this. Let's stay in line with the context. These six things, which really affirm and, and explain atonement, the point of this verse is that this is an example of why God's will, even when it includes suffering, is better. Don't lose the context. 
So guess what? When you read this verse, you're like, wow, this is a beautiful gift God has given, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement, but it included Christ's suffering. But guess what? That's far better for you, isn't it? So proof positive that God's will, even when it means suffering, is better than your way around it is Jesus Christ and his atonement. Because it gives you and me and all who believe eternal life. Praise the Father for the Son. Praise God for salvation. Hallelujah for redemption. If this morning you are truly born again, you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, your heart right now is about to beat out of your chest probably. But perhaps if you've yet to come to Christ and repent and believe that Jesus' sacrifice is fully sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins forever, you're perhaps thirsty and saying, that's what I've been looking for. And I invite you, I pastorally urge you and plead with you to turn from your sin of unbelief and to believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. It would be something like this, even in your seat where you are, just saying to God the Father, God, I do believe that I'm lost and in my sin will never make make it to you. I can't be right with you apart from Jesus. I can't be brought to you on my own. So God, would you in your grace and mercy forgive me through Jesus for my sin and save me and give me eternal life I trust what Jesus did as the only way to be saved. He's Lord. God, would you save me through your son? And God will faithfully, graciously, supernaturally, powerfully do exactly that. He will save you and give you forgiveness of sins, eternal life forever. That's what this verse exclaims. We could end there and go home full, couldn't we? And I debated making this a six-part interlude. I did, but I know we're going very slowly through 1 Peter for some of you. It's still a little fast for me. But uh, I thought, you know, I probably can't do that to them. Six weeks in one verse, I don't know. I would love it, but we're good, right? This is an excellent, uh, beautiful verse, isn't it? And it's already doing its effect. It's triggering so much in us, so many thoughts. It's, just, it's a waterfall. It's a flood of beauty, isn't it? Now, keep this in mind. This is proof that God's will, even when it includes suffering, is better. And so on the heels of this, he now declares the victory that this atonement brought about. And he he begins to talk about some things that happened after the atonement, after Christ's death. Um, And he begins to use some typology to explain that. Now, going forward... There are some areas that we can have some differences on in these following verses. We're going to have some areas like, okay, this is a, these are things after the trigger truth. Like verse 18, it's, it's settled, non-negotiable. But there are some things after that now we're thinking, okay, well, how do you view that and how do you view that? Let's get into that for a bit. And he's going to use typology to kind of explain it. As he gets into this typology, he mentions this in verse 19. Look at your text with me. After the atonement, after this... Um, final and full redemption, it says, he, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Like, like, what's going on with that, Todd? Now, there's a lot of views on what this phrase means, something that Jesus did after his atonement, and he did because of the atonement. 
Now, all of these different views center really around three questions. Let me just kind of show you the questions. For these might help you answer where answer them and know where you land on this. Because you might not land where I land, and that's fine. Here are the three questions that you have to answer if you're going to decide where you land on this phrase. Who are the spirits? When did Christ preach this? And what did Christ preach? And some of the views vary around the spirits or people. Some believe they're unbelievers. Some believe that they may be believers. Others believe they're fallen angels and evil demons. Some think Christ preached after the resurrection, some between his death and resurrection. Some wonder if what he preached, did he offer repentance again as a second chance, or did he declare his victory? Those are all things that you'll need to think about and compare Scripture with Scripture. Here's where I land. Here's my best understanding of these two verses and this phrase. That after Christ died, he went to the realm of the dead, and he declared victory over fallen evil angels. And we could even say as a general rule, like the, um, you know, uh, all of those who were his enemies. He declared his victory over them, and this included those who sinned sexually with women during Noah's time. Now, I'm not going to argue with you on that if you don't land there. In fact, I'll have you over for dinner, and you can have me over for dinner. We'll cook out together. How's that sound, right? We can disagree on these specifics. Uh, I arrive at this in a couple of ways. First of all, I think the word spirits is never used in the New Testament to describe human beings when it's in the plural form. So I typically try to go to grammatical, contextual, historical reasons to form a view as opposed to emotional ones. The word spirits is just not used in that way in the New Testament in the plural form. I also find much support in the following verses, such as Colossians 2.15, where it says that Jesus did declare victory uh, to his enemies, Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, talk about these spirits as fallen angels who are imprisoned, and he's mainly speaking of those during Noah's time. So I tend to think this is probably representative of that portion of fallen angels or evil spirits that have been imprisoned because of that disobedience. I don't think it's all of them. Some are still roaming free in that sense to tempt man and bring evil and destruction, but there is a portion of fallen angels that are, that are in prison currently. I think it's to those ones from that time period that between his death and resurrection, Christ valiantly declared his victory. And you may say, well, Todd, he hadn't risen yet. But notice the text says he was made alive in the spirit. Now, is spirit there referring to his spirit or the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Could be both. We know the other scriptures tell us that Christ was raised by the power of the Spirit, being the Holy Spirit. So here's what I think is going on. I think Christ was alive in his spirit after his death, though his body was actually dead. And between and before, between the death and resurrection, before the resurrection, he did declare very valiantly and triumphantly to those who were opposing him. I have finished the will of God and paid the price for sin. You can't hold people captive any longer. Your days of condemnation are over. And then God vindicated that in the resurrection. Here's why I say that. To the thief on the cross, Jesus did say, today you will be with me in paradise. You ever thought about that? He didn't rise from the dead until three days later. But he promised the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. So somewhere... The spirit of Jesus was alive. You with me? I believe it was in that time frame. 
that Jesus preached and valiantly declared his triumph over sin, death, hell, and the grave. I don't think Jesus went to hell. This is where the Apostles' Creed for me is just not as accurate as perhaps Scripture portrays it. Some people do. I don't think they're unsaved. Again, I think we can have friendly disagreement in that, okay? But he did go to the place of the dead, the realm of, of those who are unbelievers, and declare, I have just done what God sent me to do. And even in my suffering, I accomplished the will of God. And condemnation is no longer your tool to chain and bind people. So he declares this victory. That's one thing we will agree on, correct, church? Maybe the detail specifics we can argue about, but we cannot argue about this. Christ's death resulted in a victory, and he has declared that. And that leads him now to talking about this victory in some ways that include types. Now, let me talk to you about what a type is, because you're going to see probably three of them begin to surface. I think there are two for sure, but I think there may be three. A type is when A gives us a, a, a picture of B. And A is not the real thing yet. It's a shadow of the real thing coming. It's the substance. If you're following me, try to nod with me still. That's called type. You could use the word example we often use the word shadow and substance. Um, this is a, a, a way to see scripture. The scriptures have several types in them. We call this typology. I think there are at least two here. One is the ark. It is the type. Now watch this. Stay with me. Don't lose me. Salvation, and I would be more specific and say Christ's salvation is the antitype. One is the shadow, one is the substance. Are you with me? We can use the word anti-type in a good way here. It's not meaning it's against the type in a bad way. It's saying it's fulfilling the type. So I think the ark is a type. Christ's salvation is the anti-type. I think water is a type in this text. I think baptism is the anti-type. I think Noah is a type in this text of the exiled strangers that Peter's writing to. Let me explain these as we read these verses now that are difficult to understand. After explaining that there's this victory that occurred over evil spirits, he mentions Noah's name. At the end of Noah's name, watch what he says. He says, while the ark was being prepared in, circle the word in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So far, we're good. We get that. Okay, Noah's preaching as a, as a heralder of righteousness. He was commanded to build an ark. It was the mechanism, the vehicle by which those who believed in Christ were saved. That was only eight people. And when the waters of judgment came and flooded the earth, Noah was saved by being in the ark. He was saved through the flood, through the water, by being in the ark. Amen, church? Pretty simple so far, but now we get to the phrase that sometimes throws people, in which Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And here's some people like, oh man, now Todd, I'm just, I don't know what to say or do. But notice what the text says. Let's just stick to the word. We'll always be safe if we stick to the word. It will do its job for us. 
Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this. What is this? It's being brought safely through water. So baptism, watch this. And I'm going to use this phrase on purpose, even though you might could just sound clip this and make me sound like a heretic. Baptism does exactly for you what water did for Noah. Baptism shows that you're being saved through the water. You're not being saved because of the water. You're not being saved by the water. You're being saved through the water. Are you with me? Just like Noah was saved through the flood. Now, watch our baptism picture here. This is biblical baptism. We are um, associating, identifying with Christ in his uh, death, and we go down into the water. So even in baptism, guess what water represents? The judgment of death. But you don't stay under the water. We don't baptize folks and then... Why? Because they're in Christ. And so we say buried in the baptism of his death, which is really the judgment for sin. The wages of sin is death. But Christ took your place. He died your death. Are you with me? You see how it all connects to verse 18? He was your substitute. He died in your place. So when we symbolize and show someone passing through the waters of death, we take them down and then we raise them in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. So the text is really not complicated when you understand that the word baptism, which corresponds to being brought safely through water, it's the antitype of water, or I would say more accurately, the flood. So you could word it like this. Let's read the text. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Watch this. If we use the same language as the previous verse, now brings you safely through water. Well, that makes sense. We're not saying we're saved by baptism. We're saved because of it. We're just saying just like Noah came through the water in the ark, baptism now brings us safely through the water because we're in the ark of Christ's salvation. Don't forget, in the text, Peter mentions that there was an ark in which a few were brought safely through it. So they're in the ark and brought safely through the water. You're in Christ. You're being brought safely through the water. Peter words it like this, baptism, which now saves you, referring to the fact that just as they came through water in the ark, we come through baptism and we're saved by Christ. We're saved through the waters of baptism, not by or because, but out of. I think he further amplifies this point in this next uh, part of verse 21 with both the negative and positive statement. Let's stay in our text, can we? He says, baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body, so it's not a cleansing moment. Did you catch that? But it is a clearing moment. He says it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So baptism, when you're coming through the waters of death in the ark of Christ's salvation, it's that moment where publicly you are requesting, and the word appeal is also the word pledge. You're appealing, you're pledging, you're, you're requesting, you're saying to God, what I've done internally by placing my faith in you, now I'm showing 
externally, and God, I want to make good on what I've said. You want to have a clear conscience. You don't want to say one thing to God and live one way in front of people. You don't want to say, yes, Lord, I believe, but I don't want anybody to know about it. That's why Peter here says baptism is that moment in which you show, yes, you're saved through the waters of death in a public way to where your conscience is clear that what you've believed and how you behaved line up. This is why Jesus would say, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. There's something significant about having the courage to go public with your faith. And watch this, church. Without apology, baptism is the first way to do that. And what does it show? That you are being saved through the waters of the judgment of death. You're not being saved by the water. You've been saved before this moment. But it is showing that when you go down and we bring you back up, you're not under the judgment of death that God gives to those who are sinners and refuse to repent. You are now saved through that water by the ark of Christ's salvation. So baptism should be a poignant moment for all of us. Watch how he now goes right to the resurrection of Christ at the end of 21, which sounds, again, very familiar to almost the end of verse 18. He was made alive in the Spirit in verse 18. Now he says all of this typology, this idea of baptism and coming through the waters of judgment, it's through the resurrection of Christ. That's why we don't just leave people under. Are you with me? We raise them because Christ was raised, and so we are raised in his likeness. And then verse 22, speaking of Christ, after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven. He's now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. All of these have been subjected to him. Christ has full and all authority. He is king. Again, it's this theme of victory. So do you see what's flowing now from verse 18? Let me see if I can kind of get your head and hands around this. It's this whole idea that here's what Christ has done for us. Here's what God has done for us through Christ. And it is not only our victory, it's the vehicle for salvation. It's all about the ark of Christ's salvation, showing that, symbolizing that, knowing what it means, and rejoicing that because in that moment of atonement, of redemption, Christ won the victory and gave us the vehicle by which we could pass through the waters of judgment. All of that is stemming from this trigger truth that Christ's atonement, his suffering, is solely sufficient for everything you need. That's verse 18. And it just kind of cascades into all these thoughts down through verse 22. That's why I think it's best to just keep all of these five verses in this one simple sentence. We'll say it again and we'll say it together. You ready, church? Christ's death and resurrection stand as the solely sufficient victory and vehicle of our salvation. Never move away from the cross. Stay tethered to the gospel, which the core of it is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you do, when you make sure that you are in lockstep with the cross and you, you'll keep your life really aimed at God's purposes, everything flows from having a gospel-saturated, gospel-centered posture. 
That's where we understand more about the victory and the vehicle of our salvation. Now, with both of these under our feet, here's some intentional behavior that I want you to embrace with your hands. Just three things as I close. Number one, know this. Christ's suffering is eternally satisfactory, so be done with past guilt. I mean, can you just be done with the sins that the father of lies wants to keep strapping to your back? Don't let him Velcro those to you any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to be very pastorally candid with you for a moment and say to you that I do think there is a healthy way to remember our past that can be motivating and spiritually invigorating, all right? Often I think about things I've done and said, even as a kid, you know, as a husband, as a dad, and and I regret those sins that I've committed. Like, man, I, I just wish I'd never done that. But it's not in a condemnatory way. It's in a way that it makes me grateful for God's grace. I know they're covered. I'll not answer for them. And it motivates me to thank God and then to be, and, and to be grateful for the changes he's brought in my life and to look for more changes, to, to believe God's power can keep changing my life. Are you with me? I think, personally, in all pastoral candor, that's a healthy way to deal sometimes with the sins that we think about. I talked to someone this week, and we both admitted there's just some things in our life we'll never forget. They're so prevalent in our memory, and they're, they're, they're things we did wrong. For some reason, they're just impossible to forget, but they don't have to chain us or condemn us, but they can serve often as a reminder, I don't want to go back to Egypt. Are you with me? I don't think that's that unhealthy, personally. And maybe I'm wrong on that. A counselor or someone can set me straight. I'm open. I'll hear feedback. But I have found it spiritually helpful to use those things that I can't forget, but I know are forgiven, as a reminder, like, man, God has changed me from that. I'm not that guy. And so there's still hope God can keep changing me. I find that to be helpful. But I want to warn you, there is a type of remembrance that is unhealthy. We think about our sins, and the devil reminds us of the things we've done that are wrong, and we feel like, yeah, God can never forgive that. I'll always be known by that. It's going to define me forever. And I want to say to you, by the power of the Holy Spirit and upon the authority of the Word of God, no sin is bigger than the atonement of Christ. He suffered once and for all to bring us to God. And if you have trusted and repented and believed in the name of Christ, he has brought you to your heavenly father and your heavenly father declares you clean, innocent, righteous, holy, and just by the work of Jesus Christ. So when the devil tries to Velcro your past to your back, refuse to wear it. You are not condemned. 
So be done with past guilt. Number two, Christ's death is proof that suffering can be God's will. So can we be done with the prosperity gospel? We're going to keep burying this heretical viewpoint as long as we can, as long as we need to. If you need any further proof that that just being saved doesn't suddenly make all your problems go away, just look at Jesus. And it was better for Jesus to suffer so that we could be saved. You need no other proof. You need no other shovel to dig the grave for the prosperity gospel than that. So church, if you're holding God to some type of like impossible, man-made, heretical standard that, hey, I said I would believe you. Why am I still having all these problems? Why is this happening? What's this occurring? Just bury the prosperity gospel and look to Jesus who, in his most crucial hours, suffered greatly so that you would not have to suffer eternally. Number three, God will deliver his people through his son who is now reigning with all authority. So can we be done with paralyzing fear? Now, I told you, I think Noah here is a type of the exiled uh, stranger that Peter's writing to, those uh, chosen exiles, he calls them, those wandering strangers. I think Noah is a type of those, we could say even us, who for many years continue to obey God in the face of persecution and ridicule. The Bible calls him a heralder of righteousness. And he did exactly what God said, even though it looked like this idea of a boat is ludicrous. I mean, we've not even seen rain, Noah. And you're predicting a flood? But when all was said and done, God was true to his word and saved his people through the ark and from his judgment. And church, I have tremendously great news for you. God will keep his word and send Jesus in the same way he received him. And he will rescue his people and then judge the earth. And though the world may look at you and scoffers may say, your God fell asleep. He forgot. I can rest assured God is simply patient. He's not sleeping. He's not napping. He's long-suffering, willing that all should come to repentance. But there is a day coming When God will keep his word, he will send Jesus and God will deliver his people from their suffering once and for all. While we're waiting, can we be committed to courageous, convictional living? While we're being maligned, ridiculed, while we're being unjustly treated, while you may be suffering for righteousness' sake, can we just commit to living with this conviction? God will deliver us. I don't know when, but I know who. It's Jesus Christ, and he is coming. So I will faithfully, convictionally, courageously stand with and for Jesus. I'm done with paralyzing fear. 
And I think those three intentional behaviors will carry us a long way, all of those being inspired, fueled, and motivated by the work of Christ on our behalf. The atonement is complete. Redemption's full and free. So be done with your past guilt. Be done with prosperity gospels. And be done with paralyzing fear. And let us then, because all of this is provided in Jesus, humbly submit even to suffering if necessary, which is God's will at times. And let us trust Jesus, who is now ascended and highly exalted, His death and resurrection have paid our debt in full. And he now empowers us through his spirit to live with full faith and courage, waiting for him to come and deliver us once and for all. In church, King Jesus will. Let us wait and work in a manner manner worthy of the name by which we're called.